So let's pick up in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 17, following through verse 30. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I want to say really quickly before we begin, because I like to... uh, give credit where credit is due. Much of what I'll be speaking on today can be found in the works of Leonard Sweet, professor of mine, a prolific Christian author. Robin Meyer, who is a beautiful pastor of 30 years in the UCC movement. And then also a theologian by the name of James K. Smith. Jamie, if you're close to him, I'm not, so I call him James. For those who followed Jesus, a new tradition was launched in the upper room in Jerusalem with the Last Supper. The unleavened bread and the cup of wine offered to his closest disciples at the end of the Passover meal marked the end of one era and the beginning of a new one. The new Passover he presented was an invitation to the Lord's table where Jesus would always be present, where the offering of food and drink in the name of Jesus would transform whatever the meal, whatever the time of year, into a banquet. At the Last Supper, Jesus added something to that Jewish Seder meal they had gathered to celebrate. You see, the Passover celebration begins with three plates filled with bitter herbs or horseradish, eggs, matzah, shank bone, and haraseth, which is this cool little paste of nuts, fruit, and wine. And then there's also vinegar and salt water. And after that three plates comes, comes a full meal, followed by the dessert. But it was here where Jesus broke the script. Instead of the traditional dessert, Jesus invented a new dessert for his disciples. The added elements here were the broken bread to symbolize his broken body and the poured out cup, the blood of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, scripture tells us. 
You see, the words, let us eat, in every culture, the best theater of faith is the table. If this is especially true in Christianity, Jesus did some of his greatest theological teachings at the table. It's where he served his best food for life. 23 parables in Luke's gospel, more than 15 or almost 70% of them feature food. At Levi's house, he put on the, on, on the table the theology of mission. At Simon's house, he put on the table his theology of grace. At a meal with 5,000 seekers, he put on the table his theology of evangelism. At a Bethany supper with Martha and Mary, he put on the table his theology of relationship. At a meal with scribes and Pharisees, he put on the table his theology of holiness. At a meal with lawyers and religious leaders, he put on the table his theology of the kingdom. At his last supper, he put on the table his theology of discipleship. At the Emmaus supper... With Cleopas and Mary put on the table his theology of scripture. And at his last supper on earth with his male and female disciples, he put on the table his theology of incarnation. The table is what returns us to the focus of our faith. Jesus. It's got to be about Jesus. Christian theology, it's been said, is the art of table talk. The summit of Christian theology is reached on the table. And so it's today that I want to take this symbol of the table and I want to offer perhaps a slightly different take than maybe what we've heard before. See, today what I'd like to do is I would like to invite you to a place at the table of resistance. A way that embodies the type of kingdom that Jesus calls us to participate in. The type of table that bids us to take up our cross and come die. A way that would be so dangerous to those in power that it would lead to Jesus' death. Again, offering you today the table as the table of resistance. Robin Myers, in his book, Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance, says this about what I want to say to you about resistance. To be clear, by resistance, I mean that the church of Jesus Christ should be, as it once was, an embodied force opposed. A beloved community of defiance, a joyful but resilient Colony of dissenters from the force of death, both physical and spiritual death, that destroy and marginalize creation. The assumed premise here is that compliance with the unacceptable, even through apathy or indifference, is a sin. You see, the body of Christ was born to resist in love all that is the enemy of love. This cannot happen, however, until the human being's are themselves freed from the illusion that afflict us. That is, until you and I and us are undone by the beautiful scandal that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Worship can even be performed as a collective act of community resistance. And it can be theatrical. Gotcha, babe. <laughs> 
She's a drama teacher. In the best sense of the word, akin to what the author Anna Carter Florence calls the reparatory church. See, she says this, we're engaged in a divine drama acting out the gospel on an ecclesiastical stage. I often say to my students, and I like to say it here, that we are here on Sunday mornings to remember and then to rehearse so that we can respond. And we rehearse by engaging in these liturgical acts, such as singing songs of praise and worship, such as giving in such a way that we give generously so that we are not to be uh, confused that the economics of the kingdom of heaven is different than the economics of this world. So that when we hear a sermon or we preach a sermon, what we're talking about is there is a narrative, there is a story that is to foster in us a holy resistance and a loving uh, rebellion. A rebellion against the ways of this world and instead an enculturation of the kingdom of heaven to be felt and enjoyed and employed by you and by me and by us. So we remember and then we rehearse. We rehearse. We do these things. We'll take this table as an act of resistance. So that when we leave these walls and we're in our everyday with God life at work or school or in our families. And hopefully what we're able to do because we've remembered and because we've rehearsed. Is that we can respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit to be God's hands and feet to this world. You see, being in character means more than just assuming an alternative identity. It means becoming a vision. That vision of creation healed. That is the dream of the prophets. Contrary to the seductions of the ego, we resist acting for acting's sake. And work instead to create a scene that transcends good reviews or curtain calls or applause. But rather, its purpose is to give us a glimpse of what will come after, not what has just come before. So let me be clear today about the three forms of resistance that I'll be advocating. And let me say that resistance must be personal. It must be personal because we're requiring that we resist self-infatuation or ego. That this type of resistance we're talking about today must be theological as we push back against the idea that Christianity is an orthodox belief system instead of a very unorthodox way of being in the world. And that it must be cultural. So that when we resist, we are pushing back against the empire by hiding ourselves like leaven in the imperial loaf. You see, the first of these, when we go and we take of this table, when I'm inviting you, inviting us to come and to join the table of resistance, we are understanding that faith is a resistance to the ego. In other words, it's not about me. It's not about you. Now, we don't find this in Matthew's account of the Last Supper. But if we look at the Gospel of John in John 13, the same story told with a slightly different way, highlighting different things. This is where we see Christ at the table washing the disciples' feet. 
Jesus comes and Jesus says to his disciples, let me wash your feet. Peter says, not me, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. You're the leader. You're the master. I'm the servant. And Jesus says, if I can't wash your feet, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And Peter, as Peter always does with his mercurial attitude, says, bring it on. Wash me all. Jesus like, simmer down. We're not getting into bath time. This is not what I'm talking about. Jesus, over and over and over again, pushes us to resist the sense of ego that plagues so many of us. From the earliest time when Jesus is in the desert being tempted by Satan, he's having to resist the spectacular. He's having to resist the temptation to go to the top of the temple and throw himself off and make it about him. He's having to say, no, I won't be a populist leader because I'm not going to turn these stones into bread to feed that way. That's not what's going to happen here. Jesus makes it very clear that it's about the Father and not him. See, there's this plague on the church that we all want to be leaders. We all want to lead. But if we're true to what Jesus did, Jesus was primarily the first follower. Following the will of his heavenly father. Moving in the power and in the agency of the Holy Spirit. When we take this bread, when we take this cup, what we're saying is, It's not about me. It's about the community of the kingdom of heaven that I call myself a citizen of. There's a reason why the admonition when Paul says to take of the Lord's Supper is is that, that people are eating unto their death. They're eating improperly. Now, that's bothered me for a long time. Until I realize what he's really saying there. He's not saying if you have sin in your life and you take of this, you're going to die. That's not what he's saying at all. What he was pushing back against was the fact that there were people at this time in these regions who gathered together at this place where everything is supposed to be uh, equal and everyone is supposed to share and everyone is supposed to have the same. And what, what Paul's talking about is there were people who were rich who came and ate all the good food. And then when other people came, To enjoy the Lord's table, the agape feast, they were withheld from. The very thing that was supposed to unite was the thing that caused division. And that's what Paul says is bringing death upon yourself. Yes, we're supposed to examine ourselves. But remember, it's Jesus who says, listen... Before you put the gift on the altar, consider yourself. And if you've got aught with a brother, go make it right with them before you come and bring this gift to me. In other words, we're examining ourselves and we're examining about our own personal sin. But even more than that, we're examining, is there someone in this room, in this church, in this community that we have ill will with? And if that's the case, because the table's about community, it's not about me, it's about us. Then I need to go and make that right. The second thing when we talk about resistance is faith as resistance to orthodoxy. And what I put here was belonging and behaving as well as believing. Again, Jesus gives us a table. Something that is among the most ordinary and everyday of all things. 
He doesn't make it about whether you have all the right beliefs and all the right systems. He doesn't say to Thomas, Thomas, I'm not sure that you understand that the Father and I are one and the same in our our essence, in our ontology. Maybe you haven't gotten that right. Maybe you need to go revisit your, your, uh, your theology textbook before you can partake. He doesn't say to Peter or to John, set them down and says, I'm just not sure that you understand, you know, my, my divinity and how that works and how that flows. Instead, what he does is he gives a way of life. In the book Desiring the Kingdom, James Smith, James K. Smith has this to say about the table. The tangible display and performance of the gospel in the Lord's Supper is a deeply affecting practice. Its sights and smells, its rhythms and movements are the sort of thing that seep into our imagination and become second nature. Just as a song makes words stick in our memory, so the sights, smells, and rhythms of the Eucharist seem to make the story both come alive and wriggle into our imaginations in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. We should appreciate that the stuff of the Lord's Supper, the elements as they're sometimes called, are rather ho-hum stuff. Bread and wine, staples of any daily diet in many parts of the world and across history. You see, in instituting the feast, Jesus took up what was in hand, what would have been on any table at that time. And while these are rich with symbolism from Israel's history, they're also everyday items. So once again, in the very practice of Christian worship, we see a hallowing, a sacredness, a making holy of the everyday, a sanctification of the domestic, if you will. It's as if God once again looks upon the table laden with fruit of the earth and proclaim it all very good. See, here we see a wonderful encapsulation of how these sacraments intensify the general sacramentality of the world, the The Lord's Supper is different from the common meals of daily life, but it's also continuous with them. And this suggests that the kingdom does not involve a cancellation of worldly concerns. It's not a holy other world, but rather the world transformed and transfigured. So not only when we take from this table, when we enter into this body of Christ, when we call ourselves brothers and sisters and imitate the way of Jesus Christ, not only are we resisting our own egos, not only are we resisting uh, the, the trap of making it all cognition and all about beliefs, but we're also saying that faith is resistance to the empire and that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. See, what began as a quiet rebellion of mourners soon grew into a movement that inspired collective embodied noncompliance with the status quo. Vertical and hierarchical religion was flattened by horizontal and democratic egalitarianism. Women could speak and lead. Half-breeds could find a place at the table. To be a Gentile lover was not an insult, but the norm. Tribalism was trumped by joy, and all the divisions of human contrivance were swept away or melted down and poured into the holy grail of everybody is somebody at the open table. On the outside, all roads might lead to Rome, but on the inside, there was just one straight highway through the desert. The reign of the unclean God of distributive justice had begun. 
And yet to look at much of the church today here in the West, we're a far cry from the way of the early church. Robin Meyer says this, The first Jesus people often met in secret, scratching the sign of fish on doorposts to mark the spot. Whatever else one might say about modern Christianity, no one describes it anymore here in the West as an underground movement. Now we market our location in affluent suburbs with enormous crosses and electronic signs by the highway. Any move by the church today to subvert the dominant culture is met with charges of socialism and or lack of patriotism. But if you read Acts 4, however, no one claimed private ownership of any property, but they all owned and held in common. So there was not a poor person among them. You might choose a stronger word than socialism to describe the early Jesus people. And where did that spirit go? Why is it that no one today thinks of the church as even the least bit dangerous, much less a thorn in the imperial flesh? One theologian has said that we're much closer today what might be called the empire's compliant acolyte. So the question is this, plain and simple. What happened to the church that once gave the empire fits and now fits right in with the empire? See, when we're talking empires, perhaps it would be more accurate to say that there are empires, plural, that live in us, and that together they form domination systems from which we cannot extract ourselves without putting everything we are taught to value at risk. Comfort, safety, material possessions, these are as attractive to would-be prophets as to the most unrepentant plutocrats. We love our stuff. And we're taught from the very beginning that life is about comfort, that life is about safety, and that life is about material possessions. But if you follow and you look at the way of Jesus Christ, those cannot be the primary things. See, we must resist as people of the kingdom of heaven, a joyful, resilient empire. Um, well, resistors. We must resist our egos. We must resist our puffed upness and our making all about the abstract and not dealing with the stuff of everyday life. And we must resist the empire. And when I talk about the empire, I'm not talking about America. I'm not talking about China. I'm not talking about Russia. I'm talking about comfort and material possessions. And safety as the way the world understands them. As the way that is contrary to a Savior who goes to a cross. As contrary to a church that says all that we have is one another's. As, as a way that's contrary to living it safe and secure. What does the church look like? What does it look like for us to be resistors? In the ancient times, there was a disciple of Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher emperor. His name was Mathetes. And he wasn't a Christian, but he's describing Christians to the rest of the Roman Empire. He says this. 
Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. In other words, you can't pick them out of a crowd at first glance. But the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they like... Some proclaim themselves the advocates of merely a human doctrine, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderfully and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, and they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men. And are yet persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They're put to death, restored to life. They're poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. I'm going to ask that the band comes up as we get ready to prepare ourselves for taking of this table. But as you take this table today, as you take this bread and wine or juice, I want to invite you. Does your life look the same as everyone's? And yet there is something so confessedly striking and different about it. Do you and have you and will you resist your own ego? Do you make it about yourself? Is it about your ego or is it about others and is it about God? Will you, as you take this cup and as you eat this piece of bread, will you say to yourself, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and I resist the idea that I can just think the right things. But I know instead that I must work to be better and better at not only believing, but behaving and by belonging and letting others know they belong. And then finally, will you resist the temptation to go through life the way the rest of the world does in a default mechanism that says comfort and security and material possessions are the things that life is about or will you instead say that I want the meaning of life that was portrayed the life of the ages that was embodied by this prophet from Nazareth the person of Jesus the Christ and if that is what you agreed to if you said I'm going to resist the ways of the world I'm going to be in the world but not of the world I'm going to love then in a moment when they play and ask that you find your way to the table and you take a piece of the bread. You can either dip it in and take it there or you can take it back to your seat.
But regardless of what you're doing with that, uh, this is an important time for us to understand that to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is high invitation, whosoever may come. But it's also high challenge. Take up your cross and follow me. So let's do that. Now let me pray as they begin to play over this. Father, we thank you for this institution that you have implemented. The fact that we have a table that is where we belong. And that we belong to a world that is not this world. Teach us to be your hands and feet. Teach us to love you with our heart and our mind and our hands. Teach us to love one another as ourselves. And teach us to be the body politic that resists ego and simple orthodoxy and the empire of the world. We thank you for this in your name. What would it look like in this city? What kind of greater things would happen? It's just the people in this room. With just the influence that we have. In our homes. In our schools. In our businesses. In our trivia leagues. In our watering holes. If we all decided. To say it's not about me. If each and every one of us collectively decided. To say, I'm going to put my ego down and I'm going to love others. What would the city, what would Bryson City, what would Swain County look like? If we all said, you know what? It's important to have the right beliefs and think the right way. We're going to determine to make sure that this is a place where everyone feels as though they belong And that we all were God's hands and feet to our community. It wasn't just going to stay up here, but it was going to spill out into the streets. And what would Bryson City look like? If we said, instead of following the dream, that stuff. What if we decided that our lives, like that alabaster box, were meant to be broken and spilled out as an act of worship? I believe, as we just sang, that there are greater things to be done in this city. And I think that there's enough people in this room to help make that happen and to establish more and more the kingdom of heaven here in this city. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for a table where everyone belongs, an open table where there is community and there is hope and that there is joy and refreshment. I love the fact that the table was first called the agape, the love feast. Teach us what it means to live that kind of joyous love and resistance. Teach us not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be renewed by your mind and the Spirit speaking into us on the daily. Teach us what it is to resist, not in a militant or hateful or domineering way, but resist in love the fact to make it about ourselves. Resist in love to make it just about our right thoughts and to resist in love the idea that there's nothing more 
than just comfort and security and stuff. Teach us what it is to love the heck out of each other in your name. And we say thank you in the strong name of the Son of God, Jesus. We say so be it. Amen. Amen.